Workers on platforms like Uber set to get more protections and minimum pay rates under a new government bill. Qantas sued by the ACCC after allegedly advertising tickets for flights that had already been cancelled. And property prices went up in August with the spring auction season set to kick off with a busy weekend. Welcome to Fear and Greed Business News, Australia's best business podcast. It is Friday, the 1st of September 2023. I'm Michael Thompson and Sean Alm is still away on holidays. With me instead is Jennifer Duke. Jen, good morning and welcome to spring. Good morning, Michael. Happy spring. Happy spring. I don't know if that's actually something that people say, but we're going to say it today because it, 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 it feels good. It feels like there's a bit of lightness in the air and it's nice. Look, after the show, you've got an interview coming up with Peter Langley, who is the regional vice president at FedEx. Yeah, I don't know how often people think about just how complicated it is to get parcels to your door quickly, but Peter gives us some great insights about how automation is becoming a big part of solving that issue. Yeah, it is such a big company, FedEx, and it's such a uh, the, the scale of their operations is so huge. It's a really interesting conversation. Well worth a listen a little bit later on. But the main story this morning, Jen, Uber, Airtasker and other gig workers will get new protections and minimum pay rates under proposed changes that the government is describing as world leading. Yes, so at the moment, it's important to remember that gig workers aren't considered to be employees, but the new closing loopholes bill, which was announced by the government, would give the Fair Work Commission new powers to set minimum standards for gig economy workers who are considered employee-like, and the commission would be able to consider base pay, superannuation, record-keeping, and insurances for gig workers, and force companies to comply. But it won't be setting minimum standards for rostering arrangements and, more broadly, the terms of engagement to try and maintain some flexibility. Gig workers who get deactivated off of a platform also have the right to ask the Fair Work Commission to step in under these rules if they think they've been treated unfairly. Uh, so the, the gig economy is quite broad. Who would this apply to? That's a really good question. So it's not intended to apply to independent contractors such as tradies, but it's expected to affect rideshare and food delivery drivers as well as some care workers. So that means probably hundreds of thousands of workers in Australia. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke said that right now employees have loads of rights like sick leave and annual leave and minimum rates of pay. But those who aren't considered employees see their rights fall off a cliff, in his words. These measures are intended to turn that cliff into kind of more of a ramp. The government, though, says it's not looking to make those gig workers employees exactly, and he said that they don't want to stop any of the flexibility of using the technology, but they want to ensure that Australia doesn't become a country where you need to rely on tips to survive, and we all know he's talking about the US. Yes, yeah, it does appear that way. Yes. So it's likely there'll probably be a pretty big fight when the draft bill is put before Parliament next week. Uh, Some of the business groups have already been criticising it. AI Group says that it's the antithesis of what is needed for a modern economy and has called it the wish list of the union movement. And the Business Council of Australia has hit out at the changes as radical, saying it adds confusion and extra costs and even makes it harder to hire casuals. Feels like we could be in for a bit of drama on this one. Yeah, I think there's going to be a pretty big fight next week. So we'll probably be talking about it a little bit more, I'd imagine. Oh, I look forward to that. Okay, how did local markets perform yesterday? The S&P ASX 200 closed up 0.1% to 7305 points. It was a pretty mixed bag over the day. Communication services was the best performing sector, followed by information technology. Energy suffered the biggest falls, followed by consumer staples. In terms of companies, Brainchip Holdings was up 6.7%, Lithium Miner IGO up 55 and Harvey Norman was up 52 
Coal stocks were trading largely in the red, though. Sayona Mining fell 12%, followed by Whitehaven Coal down 9.4%. Whitehaven was trading ex-dividend, which accounts for most of that fall, and Webjet was down 6.1%. And what about international markets? What's going on? So the markets internationally have been hit by some mixed data. China's manufacturing activity fell for the fifth consecutive month in August, but the index did not decline as fast as economists were expecting, and that helped push the Aussie dollar above US 65 cents briefly. Consumer spending in China rebounded a bit in August, according to the China Beige Book Survey of Businesses, and domestic travel has been improving. These are very small glimmers of hope, though, given the difficulties in China's economy right now, particularly in property. And inflation still seems... I suppose you'd say stubbornly high in Europe, Jen. Yeah, while it's coming down, it's doing so much more slowly than expected, particularly in Germany and Spain. So the European Central Bank has some thinking to do. Over in the US, though, there was a surprising increase in contracts being signed to buy homes, which is up to the highest in three months. All right, we've got plenty to get to. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of the day's business news. Jen, I think it's fair to say it's been a fairly rough week for Qantas. The competition watchdog is now suing the airline over allegations uh, that the national carrier advertised tickets for flights that it had already cancelled. Yeah, that's right. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says that Qantas sold tickets online for 8,000 flights between May and July last year. The only catch was that these were advertised even after the flights were axed. The ACCC also says that Qantas didn't let customers with affected tickets know that 10,000 flights had been cancelled over this period. About one in four flights was cancelled in this three-month time frame. Now, this was still during COVID, but the ACCC says that Qantas made many of these cancellations for reasons within their control. That includes network optimization, and their case relates to the conduct after the flights have been cancelled and not the cancellations themselves. It's been a pretty ordinary week overall. I mean, when you think about it, uh, we started the week with uh, outgoing CEO Alan Joyce fronting a a Senate committee about cost of living and high airfares, and then the the big storm, really, for Qantas and the government over the blocking of Qatar Airways additional flights that would have kind of put some pressure, downward pressure on airfares for consumers. And now this, how is Qantas reacting? Yeah, you're right. It has been a pretty bad week for the airline. Look, they're going to scrap the expiry date on flight refunds for $370 million worth of flights that were cancelled or messed around due to COVID border closures. And all travel credits from COVID are going to be able to be cashed out as a refund at any point, and that's with no expiry date at all. And those that book with their Qantas COVID credits before the end of 23 will be able to use a double frequent flyer point offer. So they're obviously going in on that. We're going to give customers a bunch of loyalty offers to help them feel a bit better about us. I mentioned that the government was kind of involved in, in this, having admitted earlier in the week that really they, that, that Qantas was a special case in, in intervening to stop Qatar Airways bringing new flights down under. Was there any political reaction to everything that happened yesterday? Yeah, it was pretty surprising, actually, that Treasurer Jim Chalmers decided to send out a media statement saying that basically he wouldn't comment, but that he was, I would quote, appalled by any sort of sense of consumers being messed around, which... I thought it was quite telling. Hmm. Yes, maybe trying to get ahead of it a little bit. Now, moving on from Qantas then, Jen, a, a report from the Australian energy market operator reckons that EV charging could add more than 20% to residential electricity consumption by 2033. Look, to be honest, I would have thought it would be higher than that. I'm probably actually a little bit surprised by that. 
I feel like 20% is huge, to be honest. I don't know. We'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to argue this one out at some point. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, EV take-up's been relatively slow so far. And 2033 is not that far away when you when you really think about it. No, I just I would just assume that if you're plugging your car in to charge it up every night, that it is going to add more than more than just 20%. That all of a sudden, all of that kind of charging would be kind of moving to the to the electricity grid as opposed to kind of via petrol stations and things. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. Please go on and correct me. Well, I would say also maybe people aren't all plugging in at home. They'd still be plugging in, you know, at non-residential charging stations. Ah, ah, very good point. Mm, Particularly in the cities. You know, I'm just going to stop interrupting you and (laughs) I'm just going to let you go on with the story. I'm going to keep my own opinion out of this. Not at all. So over the next 10 years, the operator has household consumption of electricity likely to jump about 30% overall. Some of that's from the EVs, but also some of it is a shift away from gas heating, cooking and hot water. So this also includes new dwellings as the population grows and a rise in businesses electrifying their own operations. It's yet another complication for the energy transition. And one of the interesting details about EV charging is that while it's expected to cause a bunch of issues up front as more people use them and we get this sort of lumpy electricity usage, it's possible we'll see coordinated charging down the track where cars are charged at times when electricity supply is more available. I mentioned this one at the top of the show, Jen. Property prices continued to go up over August. CoreLogic's Home Value Index shows prices increased 0.8% over the month. Michael, that's actually even faster growth than July. And while it's only one month's worth of data, it stopped a slowing trend in the capital cities. The Home Value Index is up 4.9% since hitting a low in February, which means the median property is now $34,000 more expensive. Brisbane property prices were up the most, followed by Sydney, and all capitals except Hobart were growing. Regional areas are a mixed bag at best at the moment. Houses are up by more than units nationally, with combined capital city house values up 6.3% since February and units up 4.9%. House prices did fall more, though, in the downturn period than units. The latest PRD Australia Economic and Property Report 2023 was also released today and shows that between June 2019, which is pre-COVID, and June 2023, the highest median house price growth was actually in Greater Hobart and Greater Brisbane. In fact, their research shows that Sydney and Melbourne's property markets have been highly sensitive to rate rises, while Brisbane and Perth are more resilient. Now, we are now officially in spring, as we declared at the start of the show, Jen, which means that the selling season, the auction season, must be kicking off. That's right. Happy spring. Right now, there are 2,401 homes scheduled for auctions across the capital cities. It's shaping up to be the third busiest weekend this year, just behind the end of February and early April. In Sydney, it'll be the second time this year where auctions have exceeded 1,000 and Melbourne will be the busiest weekend so far. So a huge weekend ahead. This next one's a pretty big story. Australia Post has suffered its first major structural loss in three decades with a $200 million full-year loss. This is down from a $55 million profit last year. It is a big story. It's actually only the second full-year loss since 1989 when AusPost became a self-funded government business enterprise. Now, parcel and services revenue is holding up at $7.3 billion, but hardly anyone is sending letters anymore with volumes falling. So what did Chief Executive Paul Graham have to say about it? Because I know he's would be fairly vocal about this. Yeah, he's warning the losses are expected to continue racking up unless services are cut. He did say that Australia Post could return to profit, but that's provided they get a favourable regulatory response towards modernisation. Now, that's in talking to the government. Now, AusPost wants the Fed government to allow a reduction in the frequency of delivering letters and the closure of some post offices. 
One statistic that is particularly telling is how many letters an average household in Australia now gets. In 2008, this was 8.5 a week. Right now, it's 2.2. And in the next five years, it's expected to be closer to one. Jen, reporting season has wrapped up at last with one of the last results being Harvey Norman. And it surprised the market yesterday with a better than expected annual net profit after tax of almost $540 million. Yeah, it sure did. There's a little bit of volatility in the results at the moment. So Harvey Norman's operating expenses were up 8% over the last year, which was attributed to the year before being unusually low because of COVID. And there was about a 4% decline in revenue with colder temperatures actually decreasing demand for outdoor appliances. So stuff like barbecues and also fans. Soft consumer confidence is also affecting the business, but Harvey Norman has reduced its dividend, bringing the total about 33% down on last year's. On the positive side, the business is on track for its expansion in Malaysia, which is a major growth market. Always interesting to hear what Jerry Harvey has to say. Was Was he worried at all about this? He really didn't seem to be. He was pretty upbeat about the outlook and he said that they were well placed to weather through volatility in sales despite the cost of living issues. He did say that their country-based stores were doing much better than their city-based stores and that's largely because the cost of rent has gone up so much in the capitals. Jen, insurer IAG is under fire over allegations it promised customers loyalty discounts and instead kind of did the opposite, charged them a loyalty tax. Yeah, class action lawsuit has been announced by Slater and Gordon against the insurance firm, and in particular, home cover issued under its RACV, SGIO, and SGIC brands. That's about a million home insurance policies that were sold through these three brands in the five years in question, 2017 to 2022. And many customers who bought cover were told that they'd get a loyalty discount with the brand. But allegedly, Internal IAG systems actually limited how much of a discount they'd get. Apparently, they used algorithms to work out who was the most likely to renew their policy and increase their premiums, regardless of whether they were long-term customers. And one last one before we get to international news. Almost 100 trustee-directed superannuation funds have failed the Your Future, Your Super performance tests, and one is even closing as a result. So the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority has found almost one in 10 of the tested super funds failed to beat the benchmarks this year. These are benchmark tests set by the previous Morrison government, and the tests were expanded to cover 805 trustee-directed products this year. That's in addition to my super funds. One of those that failed was Australian Retirement Trust's Q Super Socially Responsible Fund, which will now close. Funds that fail a benchmark are required to let members know, and if they fail twice, they can't accept anyone new. Okay, turning to international news, Chinese developer Country Garden Holdings has posted a half-year loss of almost $7 US dollars. It's also warning it could default on its debts. Yeah, this is a record loss for the development giant, which is among the biggest in China in terms of sales. Country Garden is continuing to negotiate with bond investors and banks to extend debt maturities, but it flagged material uncertainties about its future. It's the latest sign of the troubles brewing in China's housing market with new home sales flagging and the biggest banks poised to cut interest rates. The authorities have also been easing up rules on first-home buyers this week to try and get some activity back into the market. And Jen, a very curious story being reported in the US where investigators are determining whether some of Tesla's company funds may have been used to personally benefit Elon Musk. So the Wall Street Journal is reporting that federal prosecutors are digging into a secret project within Tesla known as Project 42. The project's reportedly to build a house made of glass in Austin, Texas. And it seems part of the issue is whether or not this is actually for the personal use of Musk, as in, is it Musk's house? 
The journal previously reported that Tesla board members have been investigating the use of company resources back in July. Subpoenas have now been issued to some current and ex-employees of the company. That is a fascinating story. And, and there's got to be like some joke to be made about not throwing stones and all that kind of thing. But I think we'll just leave it alone. <laughs> First time that anyone's ever left a pun alone Indeed. on Fear and Greed. <laughs> That's right. Usually, <laughs> usually we're all in. Now, up next is the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. You're speaking with Peter Langley, the Regional Vice President at FedEx. This is a good one. Yeah, if you're like me and you've ever been really curious about all that complex behind-the-scenes operations of how you get a product to a consumer, this is the one to listen to. Yeah, it is a cracker. It's coming up next in the Fear and Greed playlist on your podcast platform or at fearandgreed.com.au. And don't forget to also check out that episode of How Do They Afford That that came out on Wednesday, our sister podcast this week, looking at frequent flyer points, how to use them for business class tickets, free flights, all that kind of thing. It is well worth a listen as well. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Thank you very much, Jen. Thanks, Michael. It's Friday, the 1st of September, 2023. Make sure you're following the podcast and join us online on LinkedIn, Instagram, X and Facebook. I'm Michael Thompson, and that was the Peer and Greed Business News. Have a great day.